0: Hello, and welcome to episode 103 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Jeff Hussey. Jeff is the president and CEO of Tempered. Jeff, founder of F5 Networks, is an accomplished entrepreneur with a proven track record in the networking and security markets. He maintains several board positions across a variety of technology, nonprofit, and philanthropic organizations. Jeff was the chairman of the board for Lockdown Networks, which sold to McAfee in 2008. Hussie received a BA in finance from SPU and an MBA from the University of Washington. In this episode, we discuss adjusting to a remote workforce with a startup, founding F5 Networks, developing a user-based community, tips for information security product success, IoT and OT cybersecurity, the host identity protocol, healthcare security, prioritizing efforts as a founder, what gets him out of the bed in the morning, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jeff, how are you? Thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews.
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Um, so yeah, really uh, really interested in having you on. You have quite the storied history in cybersecurity technology and some amazing startups. But um where are you where are you physically located? Are you still up in the Pacific Northwest?
1: Yep. Um the company's headquartered in Seattle and um and so since um as nearly everyone in the industry now we um, are working at least part time from our houses i'm just a little bit north of the city so
0: Oh, very nice and uh, how, how have you been surviving the pandemic fires and everything else that 2020 has to bring us
1: okay well there haven't been so many fires here but um certainly the shift from being in an office environment to everyone being remote has been um, a pretty significant shift um I would say almost plate tectonic caliber and but um we're adjusting to that or have by now have adjusted to it and our um, productivity is back up to the levels that we had um, before everyone sent home um, on friday the march friday the 13th of march um so, yeah, making that adjustment—that's
0: great. Yeah, it's it's definitely been an interesting year, and you know, I think one of the mantras that we have in security is we just have to kind of adapt and overcome. You know, we we <laughs> I, I think a lot of us that have been in cybersecurity long enough and technology are so used to things not working that we're just like, okay, we'll roll with this one too. Um, and and you know, with that, I mean, when when you are as a founder and getting a company going, and you know, in, in kind of years of getting this going. What have been some of the I guess biggest surprises that you found in having to adjust to this new type of operational workflow?
1: Um okay, that's a great question, one that I've put a great deal of thought into. Um, I up until now, I'd never been much of an advocate um, of remote work because I think we all lose that sense of collaboration and that and the immediacy of interaction with our, our coworkers. And so I think that, um, getting back to, you know, an intimate level of interaction with your coworkers that is not, um, very regimented is an important aspect of startup culture. And so, um, you know, one of the things that was actually um, pretty beneficial for us was that, um, while we were still in the office, we used, we eat our own dog food, so to speak. And so um, ours, the Airwall platform was something that our entire dev staff uses and our entire um, go-to-market staff uses. And so um, because of that, when we all were dispersed, it didn't require a, a massive amount of, it didn't require any work really on our, on the part of the team to. To switch that context and and um, we can maintain the same security posture um, remotely as we did um, all working in the same office, and so that's really important for a dev team having access to you know their build servers and and other things, and so that that was a benefit for us. Um, you know, on the other hand, to effectively do the um, the communications, just as we have experienced this morning, there's an incremental amount of overhead um, in scheduling and and just getting everybody to gather to connect that you wouldn't have if you're all in the same office. So um, it's, I, it's a little bit of, you know, there's some pluses and minuses, and we're doing our best to um, overcome the minuses.
0: You know, be, being in kind of a uh, startup mentality where I've been for, I always, you know, particularly the same, same mentality, you know, having closed teams and I always had that you know, cliche to say, but that open door policy. say, you know, pop by my office, it's, uh, it's even difficult now where I'm, I'm more of an integrated team, um, but still have kind of an entrepreneurial kind of thing where we, we're constantly sharing ideas. That has been, I think, one of the biggest challenges where you can't just, I had this idea in my head, let me go talk to somebody. Have you found that particularly challenging?
1: Yeah. But um, I'll note that, you know, it, it says um, in parentheses after your name on this that it's Splunk. Are you are you there?
0: I am. Yeah, we're running okay. a security team here and, and working with lots of organizations uh, really adapt to these these challenges. And it's funny, you know, he's mentioned with the interdepartmental teams where I'll work with like a legal a compliance team, a SOC team, a CISO. Um, the, the advantages I would have where I can go to a customer site and say, okay, that's it. We're not doing 40 Zoom meetings. I want to get everybody in one room and hash this out is really gone. Um, and that was so tactile to how I'd operate is that in person, get everybody sitting around a table, figure it out, and let's we'll go have dinner and drinks. And, you know, the right. next day we execute it's really created a huge delay in executing a lot of these things because of either the interpersonal communications are not there, and then you just don't have that little bit of a follow up. Um, so it's definitely been a bit a bit of a challenge in dealing with that um, in, that in person part of it.
1: Right, and it's the it, it profoundly affects um, both type of you know technology workers whether they're. On the development side or the go-to-market side, but I think that um, it's been a much easier transition for the folks on the on the um, engineering side than the go-to-market side because um, you know people who are in marketing and sales are you know routinely accustomed to being you know in front of customers with customers and interacting with them, and that's now just doesn't happen everything's remote and so um you know that's an incremental challenge but um i was going to make an i was going to make an observation though we um temper does have a connection with splunk in that um eric swan one of the co-founders of splunk is actually on our board
0: oh there you go yeah it's it's interesting to see the connections in the technology space from really from Southern California all the way up to <laughs> the Pacific Northwest of this kind of industry of, of folks that have you know, really kind of grown up together. And I, I still look at a lot of what we've done in information security, still being kind of in our teenage years, and it is still a relatively small group of people. But you you started back with F, F5, which is a very well renowned set of equipment, you know, um, you know, for what it's done to been able to scale things, uh, you know, particularly, <laughs> you know, with interconnectivity with the internet, with things like load balancing, but then adding wrapping in layers of security. How did how did that all come about to really build such a a name brand in technology security and infrastructure?
1: Well, we were fortunate um, at F five to <clears throat> be I mean, we were we were the first one to actually build a load balancer, and so um, that put Cisco in the position of needing to be a fast follower. And so, despite how difficult it is to compete with Cisco and then in the networking industry, um, that they put so much effort into and so much investment into um, marketing the the need generally for things like load balancers was more beneficial to us than it was a a detraction. And so um, it was incumbent upon us to have the superior um, technical product, which we did, but it was also quite difficult to compete with Cisco because they were effectively giving it away um, in a a much bigger solution sales. So we had to win on our own merits, but, we did that. We got a couple of really key um, customer accounts that, back in the um, in kind of the explosion of the co-location um, type um, infrastructure, where you know companies like Exodus and Global Center, you know, standardized on us on the big IP. That was you know a huge boost to our business. And then um, and on on the back of that and, and other, um, web related business, um, we got public and so, and that all happened, um, just over 20 years ago. And, um, but then the, the bubble burst and the difference, I think for F five from the other, you know, wealth capitalized companies that were also in that business, um, Altion, which got acquired by Nortel and ArrowPoint, which ultimately got acquired by Cisco, um, F5 continued to invest in the technology where the others were pulling back because the boom, the bust was so um, devastating really across the industry. Um, they had to focus on, on their core strengths and then they did that. And, but when we exited the end, we had a massive technology advantage because we had continued to invest heavily in development despite the fact that, you know, the market wasn't growing. But then as we exited the bust, um, we started to, we really shifted away from um, selling to um, online merchants more to the enterprise and focused our business there. you know subtly adjusting um to talk about application delivery control and the benefits thereof and and th- that made the difference so that's that's yeah. effectively why we survived
0: yeah it's interesting you know having studied a lot of the startups in the bay area to california and pacific northwest for the past 20 years and seeing you know, it's such an amazing set of circumstances where it's definitely white right, people like yourself drive to that, um, and then there's an incredible amount of opportunity um, that allows timing and things to go well. You know, with that, you know, when you're in this early stage of startup again, going after some titans, what were some of the things that kind of kept you sane and say, yeah, we we got to keep on this right path. We have to do things the way we're doing it, and almost not get distracted by the next thing or some VC who's going to come and say, Hey, we want to pivot you and give you a bunch of money to do this to where you build something that today people still say, that's our F5, you know, where it's, it's such a, you know, it's like a Kleenex box. It's like, yeah, there's tissues, but then no, that's my F5 people today still, you know, when, you, when I do network diagrams refer to it, it's such a a brand awareness that stands the test of time.
1: Yeah. It's um, well, you know, Having the right product at the right time, and having you know a good team and and you know a little bit of luck because every startup needs a little luck, um, and then um, I used to, I still do it. I, I characterize it as try not to make more than one mistake in a row, and 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 just you know muddle through. And if you survive, you know the opportunities are immense. And so, um, yeah, that was the that was the thing about the product. And the product, um, it w- it was really important. I think um, the brand was good in the early days, but the brand got better once we um, we built the thing now referred to as Dev Central, where customers could actually contribute their own um, set of rules um, to be shared with other customers on how to best configure you know, the load balancer, application delivery controller for specific applications. And the availability of that across the customer base was, I mean, that was a massive innovation. And to really give customers an unprecedented level Level of control over their infrastructure, and that that really um, was beneficial to our growth at that time.
0: Did that Did that fuel? I guess. At what stage did that happen? Was that in early adopter stage, really getting people in? Because that that's the type of things now is you know, reflective. Everybody, you know, everybody says, "Oh, you know." having a user-based community is such a big thing. But, you know, in the 90s, and the early 2000s, there were still a lot of closed systems. Um, yeah. Today. And,
1: and so the, you know, we did this, I would say, um, it was it started in the early 2000s and it really um, hit its stride kind of, you know, middle of that decade. Um, and now people, that's just the way things are done. Um, you know, there's in um technology especially um increasingly this notion of product-led growth is the thing that is um, really driving go-to-market strategies for new technologies which is um and it's actually completely consistent now with kind of the constraints imposed on us by you know working from home customers don't go to trade shows so much um A lot of the ways that we've traditionally gone to market gotten attention are no longer effective or valid and so um, we need to actually get our our product in the hands of customers as early in the cycle as possible to get them to you know realize the value of the solution in as little time as possible
0: how much of the effort then became you know you you get these people early on loving the product and and getting it in their hands but the adoption and integration were you also focused on ensuring they had a success story post-sale
1: yeah i mean customer success kind of goes without saying um and i mean just like the technology that we're um bringing to market now back in the day um installing a load balancer wasn't trivial. Um, And it basically um, imposed uh, on network operators the need to kind of rethink their operation because the load balancer sat in an incredibly strategic point in the network, basically in between transport and servers. And so that's why um, even as, even as early as like 1998, um, Big IP <clears throat> F5's flagship product was um, <laughs> a really good firewall because out of the box it was default deny, and so it imposed this rigor on people deploying it that they had to um, clean up their network and to be you know really specific about what got through and where it got through to. Um, Fast forward, you know, twenty years, and you know, networks now still have staggering amounts of technical debt, and a lot of people don't really know what talks to what within their network. They just know that it works, and they hope that it's somehow secured. Um, And so, what we're doing now is we're bringing that positive security model. that we had back in the day, you know, with a load balancer to every device, whether that's um, an IoT device, an industrial device, um, a laptop, a phone, or whatever. Um, our solution now enables people to build their networks in in such a way that it's native zero trust. You can't get on the network unless you're pre authorized, authenticated, and so forth, and then you can only talk to the things that you're explicitly permitted to talk to and no lateral movement is possible. So um, that's a pretty significant disruption and it's applicable across a lot of different um, industries and environments and it's an exciting time for us in this business.
0: Well, you know, they say lightning doesn't strike twice, but it seems like you're kind of posed, for that, you know, again, with the situation of, you know, now we're in this COVID world, which in, in, a, I, you know, at least in my opinion, it's going to really look, I mean, I think we all knew we were going to this distributed work kind of mode, whether it was from compute to people to offices. I mean, there just was going to be a, a, a greater decentralization. And with that, you really do need to have a zero trust model. Um, so it seems like you're, you guys are kind of set up right now, given that now with COVID, it's likely going to be a permanent kind of thing for many, many people. I mean, we see many companies say they may never go back to brick and mortar and everybody's going to be remote and everything's going to be an endpoint. And as data moves from endpoints through critical systems, there needs to be, you know, that level of, hey, should this traffic be going, should these things even be talking to each other? Um, so do you feel like you, you've kind of gotten lucky again twice or was this something that you, you kind of foresaw that, hey, this zero trust mm-hmm. model was gonna happen one way or another because of dis- uh, decentralization?
1: Well, you know, I'll just be really honest, chance favors the prepared, but I had, you know, I'll be the last one to say that I saw, you know, a pandemic coming. Um, the thing that really motivated me was, you know, I mean, this is now several years ago, events like the target hack where there's this convergence of, um, IT and what is generally referred to as operational technology, um, networking that, um, allowed someone who was working on a. HVAC component to get onto the corporate IT network and move laterally. And so, you know, my observation back then is that, okay, these, the gizmos, the machines that are being attached to public network for the purposes of, you know, analytics and um, predictive maintenance and so forth is gonna realize staggering growth and, there needs to be a way to secure that those devices that that is much more rigorous than the tools that you know people currently have which are typically access control lists um, firewall rules you know vlan segmentation and so forth or using a vpn and there needed to be a much um, better more rigorous more manageable at scale methodology to bridge that enormous chasm. And so that's really what we've been working on, um, for the last several years and are, are now, um, finally experiencing, you know, some of the fruits of our labors, um, with, um, some really interesting customer traction. And it's because, um, generally people now recognize that, um, they need to restore this air gap between their production assets and the things that um, those production assets now necessarily have to be connected to, whether that's the cloud or that's a workload or that's a, um, a mobile device or somebody's laptop sitting at home, that they're managing a manufacturing plant or a robot or an IP camera that could be, you know, miles or you know, continents away.
0: So with your solution I'm just curious, you know if you look at the traditional OSI model where does that sit because I think you know as you, as you just kind of alluded to there was a lot of things that we needed to do through heck layers 1 3 and two, 4 that were incredibly complicated and there's no wonder there was so many issues that were due to misconfigurations because it was easy to any any at the end of a, a rule set or to just you know fat finger you know, subnetting. it was it was it was a pain and nobody enjoyed doing it um, so it's, it was only a matter of time because it wasn't going to scale. So where, where did you, you know, I guess, where do you, where does your technology sit within that stack or is it
1: different? <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, our technology sits right between layer three and four. So, um, Tempered is the first company to commercialize a networking solution based on the host identity protocol. And the host identity protocol was actually developed by some of the people who were, you know, Originally involved with um, V3 and V4, but um, it fixed a fundamental flaw that exists in the IP protocol stack and had since its inception. I mean, think about it. Back in the day, you'd have a guy like Vint Cerf who's working at Stanford, he phoned up his pal, Len Kleinworth, at UCLA, and those guys would exchange pleasantries on the phone. Then they'd put their handsets on analog coupled modems and their Computers, which were the size of office buildings, through routers the size of refrigerators, would negotiate a session. Security was a voice print, and nothing moved. Now we carry supercomputers around in our pockets. So they didn't think about security, and they didn't think about mobility. And and now everything requires weapons-grade security, and everything is mobile, like it or not. So... What the host identity protocol did was um, address that fundamental flaw, which is the IP address serves as both the locator and identifier for any connection. What we do is we, separ- we use um, the IP address only as locator, and so we can then, you know, peacefully coexist in um, pre-existing networks without requiring a rip and replace. And we use that infrastructure and extend its useful life by um, using it for, you know, connecting to hosts and finding out where they are. But we insert this additional layer, call it the host identity layer, in between. Call it layer three point five, and that is and and that is the um, spot and the namespace which within which all policy is established, and so. It's a zero trust model. Endpoints get their policy from an orchestration engine. Then they negotiate um, a tunnel with each other, and then data moves. After you know that um, all that that connection or that trust model is you know authenticated and uh, and authorized, and then but there's some interesting attributes. that then all that traffic is. Microsegmented end end-to-end, it's encrypted end-to-end, it's um, multi-factor authenticated, and it's impervious to lateral movement, which means that bits bound from host A to host B can only go there and they can't go anywhere else. So um, it's, a, it's a really exciting technology. It um, changes the game for a number of different use cases. Um, and yeah, that's what we're doing
0: yeah it's, it's i mean it's again it's you know when i think of when i've had my red teams run their engagements yeah it's it's get in there sweep the network look for available hosts dns lookup passively watch traffic it's it's the same set of techniques we've been using on um, you know, inside the perimeter, uh, exploitate, you know, uh, recon and exploitation attempts for 20 years. it's because the underlying technology really hasn't changed dramatically enough because I can look at everything that's happening. It's completely open. It's very easy to identify who's who doing what. Um, We're
1: very proud of the, how badly we frustrate red teams.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it. Because I'm immediately thinking like, what would I do if I can't sniff the traffic? Well, Damn it. <laughs>
1: here's the thing. That, that, I mean, that's actually the thing. Um, okay. You know, one of the first parts of recon is an NMAP scan.
0: Yeah.
1: And you're going to get a page or a volume of, you know, open ports. And it's just a matter of time before you identify an asymmetry and, and have at it. You end map one of our air walls, and you get nothing. Absolutely nothing, because it's just dropped. Just dropped. Yeah. If you don't have you don't have um, trust established with that in a an authenticated connection, it's as if that thing doesn't exist. It's for all intents and purposes invisible infrastructure.
0: I would imagine, too, from a security operations perspective, as far as managing your inventory and yeah, you know, the big thing. And if you look at all the risk management frameworks or even NIST, uh, CSF and uh, CIS, you know, top 20, it's like asset identity. Uh, you know, it's like you need to know what's out there. Um, and it, it seems like this could be an extremely good compensating control for that saying, look, no, I haven't met a single organization that has all their assets uh completely mapped or or organized or understand and then know who has access and what ports are open so it it almost seems like it kind of negates the need for them not to say shouldn't exist but it definitely gives some breathing room for people that are trying to build out at the same time absolutely very interesting so you know where does it go from here is it is it you know now that we look at things like um what i've seen in, in, which has been really interesting, I would say, in the past six months is many of these enterprise organizations that are doing a huge shift, not just to cloud services, but to containerization and isolation of specific things within inside these uh, microservices. How, how do you see that playing into that? Because I think there's a little bit of a misnomer that people think, oh, well, there's no infrastructure. It's like, well, no, it's still there. You might not see it or have to manage it, but it's still there and still has its set of vulnerabilities.
1: You know, that's, that's exactly right. Um, the infrastructure is still there, and there's more of it all the time. And the old model: the bigger you make your network, the more vulnerable it becomes. And so, you know what what our customers are doing now is they're like, okay, I need to, I need to completely lock down this network and so we we um you know deliver um software to them and in certain circumstances a a hardware appliance gateway that facilitates their ability to completely lock down an infrastructure um, and make it you know invisible to a, a threat whether that's a red team or a piece of malware or what have you and those threats it doesn't matter whether they're internal or external, which is another big problem. Um, so many threats now come internally, especially to the larger organizations, and um, and we can facilitate that. Um, another word to describe it is cloaking, making a part of an infrastructure you know invisible and impervious to um, lateral movement. Um, and that's a huge demand, it's especially acute. I mean, we have customers that are municipalities, for instance, and um, when they, here, even in Seattle, in the city, you know, if they had an issue, they would have to um, do a truck roll. And now that they, um, there's in certain um, departments within the city, our stuff is pretty um, widely deployed and they just obviate the need for the truck roll. So if there's a problem in in an an outlet or a um, facility, two o'clock in the morning, um, the technician um, gets the alarm and then can log in and and do the corrective uh, measures remotely, totally securely on assets that are traditionally air gapped, meaning that they're disconnected from anything else, but that disconnectivity approach obscurity or security through obscurity is no longer an option because everybody's working remotely and so that's it that fundamental shift that wave is what what we're surfing
0: which, which makes sense, too. I think it's, it's been such a you – know, there's two things that I feel like I've been dealing with a lot with organizations lately is that they say, yeah, we have a good, good sense of what we're doing, but the two big concerns are insider threat. And um, operational technology security, and especially with OT technology, because there's just there's things that either have embedded systems, legacy OSs, that they're like, we just need to jump box it and, and leave it separate. And it's an incredibly hard architecture to manage. Um, and, you know, you throw COVID into it. It's like, really, like ha- now we really have to because. um we're going we're gonna to open up more remote access. Uh, how do we do this safely? Uh, do you see growth in those areas where, where organizations are like, yeah, we're, we're going to have to accept the risk of having these, maybe some legacy things. Uh, but we, you know, the reality is we need to air gap it.
1: That's that's what's driving our growth right now, actually, is, is that exact thing. That <clears throat> businesses have, have finally come to the, um, realization that they need to apply the same level of rigor to their production assets, OT, as they do to IT, because in fact the risks are even higher. I mean, if you have a if you have a breach of your IT infrastructure, you know maybe some money gets stolen or people are um, you know can't do work for some period of time. Hopefully not protracted. But if an OT infrastructure gets compromised, I mean really bad things can happen. People can die.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I've always told people, you know, hey, a lot of what we're doing is we're, you know, we're not saving lives or delivering babies, but in, you know, the more that you look at things and there was just a, you know, a more recent, uh, you know, uh, one of the, was the FBI or DOJ came out with something about, you know, uh, attack on critical infrastructure and healthcare systems. And, it's like crap. Now we are really dealing with life or death situations, and it has really started. I think to raise the the hair on my neck, where there's a level of concern now as we get further integrated with our IT, OT networks and healthcare and, and manufacturing, that there can be some serious consequences. You know, and with that, you know, we we constantly hear these these concerns about state-sponsored actors doing types of things that can do particular harm. You know, from your perspective, you know, being in the industry as long as are those the types of things that "Quote unquote,"
1: keep you up at night. Well, they don't keep me up as night, much at night as they do our customers who are subjected to that <laughs> right. those risks. And but I mean, I'm I'm deeply concerned about you know the security of say um, the electrical grid because I've seen firsthand the security the you know, network security infrastructure that many components of those things are served by. And I mean, it's just, it's it's a very fragile infrastructure that um, generally we take for granted. And that's, um, you know, that's very concerning. Um, and, you know, to your point about healthcare, I think that um, what it was just a few weeks ago that the first quote, cyber death that had been documented occurred in a hospital because there was um, a ransomware attack and, and something got shut down and it cost a guy his life.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's unfortunate that sometimes the human condition waits until something that is a much more uh, acute reaction until we have to uh, address it. And, you know, my, my hope is, yeah, that we you know focus on these things now Um because it it can have some serious consequences of everything from, you know, while election interference is not superficial, I mean, it's it's somewhat less less life or death, but, you know, has impact to a lot of people. And it almost feels like now that, you know, we've been talking about cybersecurity breaches for so many years that there's probably a little bit of breach fatigue. But um, it seems to me that some of these things are more prevalent now because there is more of a a material impact than just losing your credit cards that do you you think people are starting to kind of maybe pay a little bit more attention?
1: Yep, they have to. There really are no options because it's not going to go away. It's only getting worse. The, The tools... Um, at the disposal of the dark for, or the dark side are far more sophisticated and advancing more rapidly than the ability than than the good guys, um, <clears throat> than the technology on the, on the side of the good guys is advancing. So something needs to change, and really that's why um, I've made this investment of time and energy over the past several years for precisely that reason. Um, it's a really big problem.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, you have had a very good run. I'm, I'm assuming in, in, from your notes, it looks like you were maybe not even going to come back to the workforce, but to come out of retirement and do this, I mean, what, what drives kind of that entrepreneurial itch for you to, go to the routes of startups it's not easy a lot of people burn out fail there's a lot of things what you know what drove you to start this and even prior endeavors
1: well i to be honest it's like okay i just can't not do this (laughs)
0: right
1: i'm somebody somebody is going to do this somebody needs to do that and it's right in front of me so i'm going to do it um and and really like Retiring at the age of 42 is just not a good choice. So I decided to give it another swing.
0: That, that totally makes sense. You know, and in, in with that, you know, what are some of the lessons that you've learned, you know, or advice that you give to others? You know, I've, I've asked this question to other founders before and I find it fascinating. You know, what what's some of the things that in hindsight you said, geez, I wish somebody had told me earlier, you know, some lessons that you can share with others to say, you know, here be dragons. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think that one of the um, one of the things that not not all, but some founders um, traps they they have the field of dreams, meaning that if we build it, they will come, and that's not and that's really not a valid business strategy, especially for a venture backed endeavor where your mortal enemy is time and. So it's it's almost as important to innovate in how you market and generally go to market your your technical innovation as as the underpinnings of the of the technology are. Both are really important. And so um, they need an, an an even weighting in the mind and time invested resources of the entrepreneur to give them a um, fighting chance.
0: Yeah. And it, it seems the one thing, you know, look, we, we know how much time is out there per day. <laughs> that time management almost becomes a, a critical function um, because it's, it's very easy to get pulled in lots of different directions. And, and having done starters myself, it's, there's no shortage of crises to deal with. No, there's always
1: something.
0: Yeah, you know how how do you how do you find yourself being able to prioritize what fire to put out?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that that I do is um, with the you know with our leadership team, I'm um, very um, specific about what the vital few. Um, strategic goals that need to be accomplished are, and to make sure that um, the overwhelming amount of our time and energy is focused on achieving those. And sometimes problems, um, you get them problems, I mean, the life of an entrepreneur, as you go you know, from the peak of euphoria to the pit of despair a couple times a day, it's like the emotional Bay of Fundy. Um, but, it's never as bad as it seems, and it's never as good as it seems, and so you need to just keep your eye on the ball, and 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 not um, and not be sucked into the um, the vicissitudes of the environment.
0: And you, I mean, did you spend the entire time of the startup in Seattle? Did you ever venture going down the the bay the bay area? It seems to be such a. I mean, look, there was a TV show on or, or you know, on HBO that made fun of the whole <laughs> the whole startup culture there. You know what kept you? It, and not to say that Seattle doesn't have its own set. I mean, there are some rather large, big startup you know companies out there, for Amazon and others. Yeah, there's you know, a couple of um, other big ones, but like,
1: guys up here. So, yeah. and it's in just, fact,
0: it, it's just funny how you know it it's means oh, the Bay Area becomes this. cognitive association, uh, Bay, um, association of, Oh, well, that's where the startup community is, but I'm finding out here in Colorado, there's others. And yes, obviously Seattle. Uh, how how do you resist that temptation? Were you even enticed to say, well, yeah, I know you're up there and there's big players, but you really got to be down in the Bay area.
1: I think that that is conventional wisdom and, and actually there, there is, um, and, I've been asked that question before, and I've thought about it because of how far the um, the kind of the tech venture community has evolved in the Bay Area. Um, I mean, there's just an incredibly deep bench of talent. There's an incredibly deep bench of financing, um, and there are is an incredibly deep bench of um, Acquisition targets. So, um, a lot of times, you'll get this notion of you know a product manager at one of the cartel players has this uh, recognizes a gap in in the lineup and recruits a couple of his buddies to go out and like fix that problem and then they get a little bit of money and then they go out and get a few accounts and and then they get a little bit more money and they get a few more accounts and then. You know the company says, "Oh, wow, okay, well, this is a gap," and so um, then there's just an acquisition, and and that and, and that sequence has played itself out hundreds and hundreds of times, to the point of being you know almost lather, rinse, and repeat. So that's very much uh, the certainly the Bay Area, particularly in networking and and some of the you know business to um, business. Plays, um that's what happens whereas in seattle seattle doesn't have that um level of infrastructure that the bay Area enjoys and so if you're a guy like me it's go big or go home
0: yeah there is that that you know and i've seen that with folks that have done startups in both areas and it's almost like yeah that mentality of <clears throat> going through the buffet line so to speak when you go from startup to exit to the register <laughs> of pick what you want as you go along the way and then cash out and just keep going through the buffet line And from some of the the founders I've talked to, they said, yeah, it's been good, you know, financially, but it almost leaves a little hollow where some of the folks I speak out to here in Colorado like, no, we're building things to make a difference. And, yeah, the money is great, but it's it's not why we do it. And to me, that's been a a very interesting perspective on it because it's one of the things almost like when I hire people, I'm like, let's take money off the table. I pay you whatever you want. What do you want? What problems do you want to solve? Let's not negotiate money. And it gets people thinking in much broader senses. And it's much more interesting problems, quite frankly, to
1: solve. Yep. You have to have a compelling reason why to get out of bed in the morning.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's the, you know, the Simon Sinek of start with why, like, why are you doing right. this? Um, what, what are, you know, what are some of the things though, you know, when you do look at an exit are a healthy way or you know, healthy air quoting, you know, what, what are some of the ways that, That you've looked at it saying okay maybe my time was here was done with this venture and that you want to leave on a high note or with some kind of memory what were some of the things that you looked at on the outs uh, on the on the ending
1: you know i generally um the philosophy that i've um held for a long time now is that um focus all of your attention on building an enduring asset and if you're and if you're effective at that, then good things will happen. But that has to be the focus. You can't build something to sell it effectively. You have to build something that's enduring. And so that's what I'm maniacally focused on.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. And it's funny. I gravitate to it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, you want to have a little bit of a, you know, a legacy. You want to change something <laughs> and yeah. it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's, You know, moonshots, but those are fun. You know, like you said, go big or go home. It might not always work, but hell, you know, at least I went out and swung as hard as I could.
1: Yeah.
0: So I greatly appreciate you taking the time on the podcast. Where can people find you on the interwebs?
1: Okay, at Tempered.io, just like it sounds, T-E-M-P-E-R-E-D.io.
0: Yeah, I'll be sure to put all that information in the show notes. I think it's uh, it's very interesting technology, and like I said, this it's uh hopefully it's going to solve a lot of the, the legacy problems we've seen for God, 30 40 years of ip networking that that, are, yeah. that still exist. well awesome uh thanks again so much for spending some time with me and uh i look forward to speaking to you again soon
1: yeah thank you doug i enjoyed it thank
0: you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity interviews i hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as i did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks, we'll talk soon.